Mediated Conversation on SAFM. 26 minutes now to 9 the time. Time for your Mediated Conversation this Wednesday morning. As you know, the COP28 Climate Summit is currently underway in Dubai. Leaders from around the world and from most of the world's countries are trying to find ways to agree on methods to end climate change. Many of these issues are conversations you've heard many times. It's about moving away from fossil fuels and towards renewable energy. But also now conversations around whether the global north should help the global south. It's the global north, those countries that have done more to change the climate than poorer countries. And yet it is poorer countries which often have to pay the cost. Within all of this are debates around climate financing. In other words, how to use the power of money to change the way we live to save the climate. So then, could the world change after the summit? Well, we actually find that nothing really changes, and how does climate finance work? First this morning, the role of COP, how it works, and why has it become such a big event? Dr. Roland Ngang is the project manager for climate justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Then the role of climate finance. Sasha Cook is the head of sustainable finance at Standard Bank. And finally, what can we hope for from COP and should we prepare for disappointment? Alex Linferner is a climate justice campaigner and secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition. We start then with Dr. Roland Ngum, the project manager for climate justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. Dr. Ngum, good morning. Good morning, Stephen, and good morning to all the listeners. As I understand it, the actual name of COP is the Conference of the Parties. What is COP? How did the event get to be so big over the last sort of 20 years? Yes, uh, Stephen, the COP is the Conference of the Parties, and the parties really are the signatories to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. You know, at the Rio conference, uh, the world realized that uh, we were uh, killing the planet, literally. And that is why the processes were um, signed uh, with Bonn as the headquarters and Berlin as the first COP. And we have moved all the way down to to, uh, Dubai this year. And so you have the parties that is mostly governments uh, who do the negotiations. And on the side, the president of the COP uh, organizes uh, a venue for civil society to gather and to do protest actions, the media, etc. But over the years, uh, we have seen a slow dilution of the process in the sense that there is a hard separation between civil society and governments. And at the same time, we have the kind of gridlock that happens uh, in all uh, United Nations processes, if I can put it that way. The fact that there's 70,000 people I read at the event this year, I mean, do they all need to be there? Uh, Stephen, there is clearly something happening here. Uh, we have to understand that the 70,000 people are not necessarily delegates. So the the parties to the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change really will be a small number. That figure really blows up when you start adding, for example, people who come to the expos and so on. This year, something very specific is happening. In the build-up to COP28, we had ministers of uh, energy, oil and gas, etc., meeting in several different venues. And the reason for that is because uh, Sultan Al-Jaber, the president of COP28, has deliberately tried to, uh, using American football terms, to flood the zone. 
that is he wants to drown out really the agenda of 1.5 degrees by bringing in um, oil and gas people, fossil fuel people really to try and sell this idea that uh, green energy and green gas are possible, things like that. I was going to say, if you really want to stop this process, just have more people involved in it. That's what's happened here. How then did these group, this group of people get to be the organizers? How did that happen? Well, because once again, Stephen, this is really uh, the kind of gridlock that I, I'm explaining at a UN level. Uh, the fact that all countries really have the same rights uh, in principle. And so... Um, countries will vote for each other uh, irrespective of the kind of domestic politics that they have, whether these politics are progressive progressive or not. Um, you also have, for example, Russia, which has already vetoed Europe uh, for COP29. And so UN processes really sometimes are very frustrating, uh, very slow, and really not progressive uh, at all. And also, just uh, quickly as well, you will see that there is this dilution of uh, sustainable development, sustainable growth, sustainable finance, and all of that. A lot of greenwashing happening uh, from uh, major polluters, from banks that uh, uh, sponsor all these dirty industries and so on. And all this greenwashing means that emissions have gone up not down uh, since COP processes started. Um, when countries come to important agreements at COP, and there have been various important agreements, there might be this time, there may not. Um, so say, for example, they'll reduce emissions by a particular amount. Do they stick to those commitments? Is there any way to make sure that they stick to the commitments they make at COP? Uh, there are no uh, binding uh, 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 agreements really to uh, the treaties that are signed. And so that is why you have, for example, England deciding to uh, postpone the uh, transition from internal combustion engines, for example. That is why you have China, which has set up more than 200 gigawatts of uh, coal and energy generation capacity since 2019. Uh, that is why uh, since Paris the Paris COP, uh, the commitment to invest $100 billion in developing countries for adaptation and mitigation has not materialized. We hit $20 billion only in 2022. And this, once again, is uh, the problem that we have at UN level. Um, to really make any significant impact, we all know that we need to cut emissions uh, anywhere to the order of 45, 50%. That is not happening now. And with the hard turn right of politics in countries like Germany and France, USA, etc., it's not going to happen anytime soon. Dr. Rundin Gum, thank you. Project Manager for Climate Justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. 19 minutes to nine. You're with SAFM. Your mediated conversation today is around the COP28 conference. Sasha Cook is the Head of Sustainable Finance at Standard Bank. She's actually at the conference. Uh, Sasha, good morning. I think we might have dragged you out of something. I know you weren't able to hear uh, Dr. Ngum. Good, good morning and thank you for your time this morning. Good morning. Thanks very much for having me. Can you hear me okay? Yes, we can. Thank you. Yes, As I understand climate finance, it's about providing 
funding loans to help companies and countries move away from using fossil fuels and towards using renewable methods. How important is the role climate finance is now playing in dealing with climate change? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, I think climate finance is probably one of the key tools um, that really underpins a lot of the efforts in terms of of dealing with both mitigating and adapting to the impacts of climate change. So, you know, when we talk about finance, maybe just sort of, um, I suppose, explain it in a way that's digestible. There's two key aspects to climate finance. Um, The first aspect deals with climate mitigation. And you correctly point out examples of moving away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. So climate mitigation refers to finance directed to projects that actually reduce or avoid emissions. So renewable energy uh, projects that conserve energy or water, electric vehicles are are all good examples. The second pillar of climate finance, which is probably slightly less well understood, is actually finance directed towards climate adaptation. And that really refers to projects that finance um, communities, cities' ability to adapt to or become more resilient to the impacts of climate change. So here you're talking about you know, examples like relocating buildings or other infrastructure um, to higher ground where there might be areas impacted by rising sea levels. You might be talking about um, resilient agriculture in terms of drought resistant seeds or heat resistant crops. So, so I think it's quite important to make sure that we're talking about both climate mitigation and climate adaptation when we reference climate finance. Are you finding the role Are for this is growing? Is there more and more demand for this kind of financing? Undoubtedly, yes. Um, And it's actually been quite interesting, um, Stephen, being here at COP and hearing some of the phrases again and again. And there's this phrase that I've heard now multiple times where there's a reference to billions being committed or flowing, but trillions being needed. So, you know, you really are talking about the current financing flows directed towards climate mitigation and adaptation being you know, a percentage, a fraction of what's actually required, particularly in the instance of developing countries. Is there actually enough money, actually enough capital um, for, to finance what needs to happen? Uh, you talk about billions, but do the trillions actually exist? Do the banks and the industries and the financing around the world actually have the ability to finance this then? Does the money exist? So it's, it's a good question. I mean, I'm not sure there's a simple answer to that. I think what we need to be doing is scaling up or crowding in the capital. Um, And, you know, if you look at, I suppose, if you look at some of the key parties that are going to play a role here, you've got governments, you've got multilateral development banks, um, development finance institutions, and then you've got the private sector. and, And there is a need for all of these parties to really come together um, to mobilize this capital. And again, one of the buzzwords or, or phrases that has been um, referenced here at COP28 in Dubai this year has been this concept of blended finance. So here we are talking about um, bringing together in innovative structures um, financiers with slightly different risk appetites who, you know, you might be able to bring in a development finance institution to take certain risks that commercial banks or other institutions would not be prepared to take. And by so doing, you actually enable the crowding in of additional capital 
that would not have otherwise mobilized. So there is this concept that has been discussed at length at COP this year around, um, you know, the simple answer is no. The multi multilateral development banks and DFIs alone do not have the scale to address the financing needs. So it's going to have to be um, a scaling up of what's being done by those institutions and organizations together with a significant crowding in of capital from the private sector. Are the terms of the deals different from other loans? So when I think of climate finance, imagine being a business, for example, I'm going to borrow money to build a new factory. Would there be any difference between the terms of that deal, the money I borrowed to buy to build a new factory, or the loan that I would get because I now want to install solar panels because I want to stop using coal? So are the deals very different? That's a very interesting question, actually, a very relevant one. So, um, Stephen, there are principles that exist that govern sustainable finance instruments. And this is both in the loan and capital markets because you can be talking. All right. We seem to have lost Sasha Cook there, unfortunately, um, to try and just uh, continue that conversation. was just asking if the terms are different. Uh, as I say, she is in the UAE at the moment. She is actually at the COP28 conference. And this is one of the problems that we've had is trying to just uh, understand from her uh, what exactly is happening. Uh, I think we will try and get her back and see if we're able uh, to just continue that conversation. I thought part of the conversation that was important was to understand climate finance, which is something that everyone talks about you hear it and see it in adverts all the time but to actually understand it is something different so just uh, in a way unfortunately this was perhaps the key question are the loans any different are the terms of the loans uh, any different let's see if we're able to get her back otherwise we'll continue the conversations as well uh, we'll also in a moment uh, speak to dr alex lanferna about this uh, issue here of course one of the people uh, very much involved in what's been happening around cop 28 and around climate generally so you know this is uh, some of the things that we're going to be talking about uh, for now. So, yep, that conversation will continue with SAFM 12 minutes to nine. Mediated conversation on SAFM. Eight minutes to nine. All right, let's just continue the mediated conversation now. Let's very quickly finish the conversation with Sasha Cook, the head of sustainable finance at Standard Bank at uh, COP at the moment. Uh, Sasha, good morning again. Sorry about that. The question I'd asked was whether when you borrow money, when you get climate financing because you're a company and you want to install solar panels, if the terms of that are any different to, say, a business that's simply borrowing money to build a new factory. Build a new factory. Yes, <clears throat> Stephen, sorry about losing connection there. So there, there are some differences. Um, there can be some concessional terms available, um, and that could be through the use of blended finance um, instruments, as I had previously mentioned, where you actually bring in some concessional pools of funding, uh, potentially grant funding or other forms of funding that lowers the overall cost of funding. Um, we have also seen where instruments are structured as green that there's an increase in appetite or liquidity available in the market to invest in these instruments, which again may actually translate to a slightly tighter pricing on the instrument. Um, I would say the other key fact is that uh, there are principles that govern these instruments. And under the green loan and green bond princi uh, principles, there is actually a requirement to report on the ongoing impact of the projects um, that are being invested in. And that for me is quite a key difference because not only are you dispersing the funds and doing some upfront due diligence around how the proceeds will be used, but there's actually a requirement on an annual basis to report on the impact of how the funds have been used. 
Right, I'm with you now. Sasha Cook, thank you very much indeed. Head of Sustainable Finance at Standard Bank. We are going to end it there. I realize that uh, we are having some technical difficulties and you are at the COP28 conference, which may be part of it. So thank you for that. We continue your mediated conversation now with Dr. Alex Lundferner, Climate Justice Campaign and Secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition. Dr. Lundferner, good morning to you and thank you for your time. And morning to your listeners. Um, it would seem to me that one of the best ways to make um, to stop climate change is to sp- is to basically uh, harness the economics of the transition. Does climate financing play a big role in that? Is everything we're seeing now going to lead to a real change in how the world works and generates energy? Yeah, I think you're right. We really need to be moving money into uh, renewable energy and uh, technologies that support it, like storage. Um, and so we need to be asking big questions about those who hold the finance. Um, and I think even your, your previous guest, Standard Bank, invests still a lot in fossil fuels. And so we're at a point where the science says we need to be redirecting funds into renewable energy only, and we can't continue to ramp up fossil fuels. Otherwise, we'll push past this really vital 1.5 degrees Celsius target. Um, so there's lots of money around, and you know, particularly when we think about the the money that's held by wealthy and corporations, a lot of that's going to fossil fuel still. Um, so if we redirected those funds to clean energy, we would go, you know, a really long way. Um, and so th- there needs to be big questions asked of those that hold the funding, why they're still funding new fossil fuels. Even the chair of, you know, the COP28, um, Sultan Al-Jabbar, who's also head of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, they're planning on investing in a massive expansion of oil and gas, far out of line of what's needed on climate change. So why aren't those funds that are going to uh, fund that expansion instead going to climate action? I think there's a lot of contradiction in that space that need to be called out. There's a lot going on at COP, and I just want to sort of move away from COP for a minute to two of the bigger factors that I think might determine what happens next. You're the expert on this, Dr. Lonferner, but these are two things that I identified. They're two global dynamics. The one is China where they seem to be moving towards renewables very quickly from what I can see. And in fact, more quickly than anyone really thought possible. India is doing the same. The other is the United States. And what happens if Donald Trump wins another term as the U.S. president? Are those two important factors to watch with regard to the climate? Definitely. And I think you're right. China is moving at a speed and scale that very few understand. It is a massive amount of renewable energy that they're investing. You know, if you add EU and the United States and the UK altogether, they still don't you know, add up to how much China is investing in renewable energy. Of course, at the same time, they've been investing quite heavily in coal. And so there's a big question of how much that coal will be utilized. But you know, recent forecasts suggest that China's emissions are likely to peak next year and start a structural decline. So that is a massive, massive shift that's happening. In America, under the Biden administration, they passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which you know, has been one of the biggest investments in renewable energy and clean technologies in American history. Um, you know, arguably it's not quite enough, but it's quite an important starting point. Um, and if the Trump you know, administration comes back into power, they've been quite clear that they want to dismantle that progress. And so, you know, this is, I think, where we see where right-wing governments are often very much in bed with fossil fuel lobbies who try to bring them to power in order to dismantle and roll back progress on climate change. And so I think this is where climate activists trying to work their hardest to avoid the election of leaders like that who roll back progress. We've seen the same thing in the UK where the Conservative Party came into power and started pushing forward new fossil fuel projects and rolling back progress. And so really the political terrain is a key area where we need to fight that if we want to hold progress and push it forward. 
Could it also be if the United States, if Trump doesn't win or if the United States does sort of do what China has done, and if China is able to benefit from it economically, you would like to think the U.S. would follow that, so would India and other countries, so would we, I suppose. But actually what becomes the most important thing isn't COP. What becomes the most important thing is following the lead of someone who is already reaping the benefits of renewable power. I realize that's a contested statement or a contestable statement. But in fact, China's lead could become the most important factor in reducing climate change. People would simply follow. Yeah, I think that's an important point, is if you actually look at the economics, a big reason why China is investing in renewable energy is it's the most affordable, most reliable way of delivering energy. And so what we see at the global stage is, in fact, you know, a bit of an economic arms race to, for countries to invest in renewable energy so that they can have you know, an economic advantage in the 21st century, which the International Energy Agency says is the, sort of the era of clean industrialization. Now, the reason a lot of the times why we don't move forward is because we have vested interest in lobbies within government that are holding us back. So we can think about back home in South Africa. The ANC, through its investment arms, has invested in companies like Shell, an oil and gas company, or Seriti, a coal mining company. And so they would much prefer that we stay locked into you know, more expensive and polluting um, fossil fuel contracts so that they can benefit significantly from them. So I think a lot of the story comes down to conflict of ancient interest and corruption, holding us back from a future that's not only cleaner, but also more economically prosperous. Dr. Alex Linferner, thank you. Climate Justice Campaigner and Secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition. My thanks also today to Sasha Cook, the Head of Sustainable Finance at Standard Bank. And starting us off today, Dr. Roland Gums, the Project Manager for Climate Justice at the Rosa Luxemburg Foundation. I hope that there's a little bit of clarity around the role of COP and then, of course, the big dynamics that are playing out around the world that may reduce climate change in the longer term, particularly around climate financing. I think there's going to be a lot more discussions and things that we need to look at there. Well, I think it's going to be a busy news day today. There's the NHI bill going through Parliament today. Don't forget, between 10 and 11, Cathy will be speaking to Sinzer Mkunu, the Minister of Water Affairs, an important conversation after the release of those reports. From Mdoop, Stanza Zilma, myself.